invite you to turn to Exodus 20 in your Bibles. We want everybody to have a Bible to be able to follow along. So that's why these brothers have come up front. They're going to make their way to the back. So if you need a Bible as they do that, just get their attention and they'll get one of those Bibles to you. Our gift to you, keep that Bible. We want everybody to own a copy of Scripture. I should have mentioned during the announcements that you have inserted in your program today and for the next few weeks, this little card that is an invitation. It's a reminder to you of the series that we're going to start during our second hour, three weeks from today during the Discovering God Hour. And it's titled, You've Got Questions, God Has Answers. On the back, it has the eight weeks of that series listed and the question that's going to be answered in each of those sessions. So that's for you, but we also have a supply of these out on the desk in the lobby, the information center, for you to pick up a handful of those and to pass those out to friends and family and co-workers to invite them to be with us for that series three weeks from today. We continue our series in the Ten Commandments with the ninth. It's a prohibition against lying. Or, as one has put it, it's a command to guard the sanctity of truth. Verse 16 of Exodus 20. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Last year, National Geographic magazine ran an article titled, Why We Lie, The Science Behind Our Deceptive Ways. The article began by describing some spectacular cases of lying by, for instance, a man who gained admission into Princeton University when he told the story of his upbringing. He had barely received any formal schooling. He had spent his adolescence almost entirely on his own, living outdoors in Utah, where he had herded cattle, raised sheep, and read philosophy. Running in the Mojave Desert, he had trained himself to be a distance runner. And he quickly became something of a star on campus. Academically, too, he did well, earning A's in nearly every course. His reserved manner and unusual background suffused him with an enigmatic appeal. When a suite mate, a dorm room mate, asked him how his bed always seemed to be perfectly made, he answered that he slept on the floor. That seemed perfectly logical, that someone who had spent much of his life sleeping outdoors would have no fondness for a bed. But all of it was a lie. About 18 months after he enrolled, a woman recognized him as somebody that she had known by another name when they were in high school in California six years earlier. But even the name he used in high school wasn't his real name. Princeton officials eventually learned that he was not an early 20s college student, but in fact a 31-year-old who had served a prison sentence in Utah for possession of stolen goods and bike parts. He was taken away from Princeton in handcuffs. In the years since, he's been arrested several times on theft charges. In November of 2016, when he was arrested for stealing in Aspen, Colorado, he tried to pass himself off as someone else. Now, stories like that, in a weird way, make us feel good about ourselves. It's always fun to hear stories of people who are worse than we are. The article goes on to tell the stories of politicians and their lies and the lies of the crooked investor Bernie Madoff, the lies of Olympic swimmer Ryan Lochte, who when he was caught in an embarrassing situation, you may remember in the 2016 Summer Games, he lied about it, and of a physicist whose purported breakthroughs in molecular semiconductor research proved to be fraudulent. And I just feel better recounting those 
to you. I feel better about myself. But then the article says this. These liars earned notoriety because of how egregious, brazen, and damaging their falsehoods were. But their deceit doesn't make them as much of an aberration as we might think. The lies that imposters, swindlers, and boasting politicians tell merely sit at the apex of a pyramid of untruths that have characterized human behavior for eons. Lying, it turns out, is something that most of us are very adept at. We lie with ease, in ways big and small, to strangers, co-workers, friends, and loved ones. Our capacity for dishonesty is as fundamental to us as our need to trust others, which ironically makes us terrible at detecting lies in others. Being deceitful is woven into our very fabric, so much so that it would be truthful to say that to lie is human. That's National Geographic. Indeed, we might say that lying is human nature, or more accurately, that lying is sinful human nature. Because God did not design us this way, it is this way because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This lying impulse that we as sinners have is, like all sin, a distortion of the character of God. It's using a capacity that God gave us for a good purpose, the very best purpose of displaying his character as his image bearers and then twisting it to our own ends. God is the communicating God and he made us in his image with the ability to communicate. But sin causes us to use that ability in distorted ways, including lying. And this is why for most of the weeks of this series in the Ten Commandments, I've reminded us that each of these commandments are a reflection of God's character. They're not whimsical or capricious, but they're rooted in who God is. And they're designed for us to reflect his character in our interactions with him and with one another. I remind you that these ten commandments are divided into two tablets. Those commands directed toward our relationship with God, first of all. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. Thirdly, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God and remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. These are all about our relationship directly with God. And then the remaining six are about how we interact with others. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. Today, we will continue looking at you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. And then next week, the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. Now, as I say, these are each reflections of God's character. Because just before giving these commands, God reminds those to whom they were first given and then by extension to us. He reminds them of who he is in verse number two of Exodus 20. Where he says, I am. And the Lord, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I am the Lord, I am your God, and because of who I am, it follows that you will have no one before me, that you will not profane me by making an image to represent me or misusing my name, and that positively you will honor me by observing the Sabbath. But those commands that have to do with our relationship with one another are just as well rooted in the character of God. 
You honor your parents because they are serving in my place, in God's place. As good authorities in your life to protect and to bless you. You don't murder another human being because they're made in my image. And so to do harm to them is to defile me. Adultery and stealing are each taking what does not belong to you. And they're each grounded in failure to trust God to provide what you need in terms of companionship and sustenance. We don't lie. We protect truth because God is truth and his very nature prevents him from lying. And as we'll see next week, we're not to covet because God is sufficient for us and we need not elevate anyone or anything above him in our hearts and actions. So it's all rooted in the character of God. And today we're going to continue looking at the ninth commandment. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. It's a command to guard the sanctity of truth rooted in the character of the God who is truth. Let's pray now and ask God to help us. Father, we are here by your appointment and by your command, but because you have given us the desire to be as well. And so we thank you, Lord, for providentially arranging our circumstances so that we can be here now. And Lord, we want to hear from you. We've already heard from you that you are the Lord, our God, that we're to reflect your character in the way we behave. And now we want to focus on how we behave in terms of our thinking and our speaking, reflecting you as the God of truth. Help us, Lord, to proclaim the truth, to receive the truth, and help us to only communicate the truth so that we reflect you accurately to a world that is in need of seeing the God who is, in whose name we pray. Amen. Now, last week in part one on this particular passage, verse 16 of Exodus chapter 20, I used illustrations of lying from the world of politics. And I ended with these words. Friends, we are people of truth. Whatever our politics, we have an obligation to be discerning regarding what we hear and certainly to never represent something to be true that we do not know to be fact, whether about Donald Trump or Barack Obama or Robert Mueller or your coworker or relative or brother or sister in church. Now, today we're going to move from the world of politics, though I will have a 60 second thing to say a bit later. But we're going to move from that to our need for truth in our interpersonal relationships. So if you don't have the outline that's inserted in your program, if you don't have that out yet, I encourage you to take that out. And you'll notice that most of the outline is not in black uh, font, but rather in gray. And that's because that's the portion that we covered last week. But we left these last two points at the bottom that we're going to cover today, dealing with and applying this to our interpersonal relationships. And so the major point number three in your outline is that truth must be put into practice. We saw last week that that means we should not believe everything we hear, do not tell everything that we hear, and now, today, do not believe everything you think. Do not believe everything you think. Now, why? What's so important about monitoring, censoring our thoughts? Well, speech is simply audible thinking. When you talk, when we talk, it's simply making audible what we're thinking. So how we speak first begins with, with how we think. 
Speech is audible thinking, and thinking is simply inward speaking. We're speaking to ourselves. And then we, having spoken to ourselves, very often then speak outwardly about and to others. Jesus said it this way, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what we say originates in our hearts, which in the Bible is the seed of our thinking. The heart is the control center of the person. And our hearts are tainted so that the way we think is tainted. And that results in thoughts and words that are sinful very often. Famously, Jeremiah, the prophet said, the heart is deceitful above all things. And beyond cure, who can understand it? Romans chapter 3, as Paul there lists in Romans chapter 3, a litany of things that are evidences of the complete sinfulness of humanity. And he uses our anatomy and the way we speak and our feet and the way we walk and every part of us is sinful. He says, among those things, this, our tongues practice deceit. This means that you and I should have the humility to doubt our own conclusions about matters that we cannot prove. You see, we're deceitful. Our hearts are deceitful. And so we should question our thinking. We should have the humility to doubt our own conclusions about things that we can't prove. Because contrary to what you think about yourself or that others may have told you about yourself, you do not have a sixth sense to judge other people. I have had people tell me over the years the strangest things about their ability to know what's going on with other people. Years ago, long before CBC was in existence, even before we started attending and serving at our parent church here on Baptist in Flat Rock, at another church prior to that, when I was a young adult, I'll never forget a guy telling me that he can size someone up just by shaking their hand. He's just discerning what's going on with this person by shaking, by shaking their hand. And friends, you may have sinned in judging someone or someone's in the past, but then turned out to be right. You still sinned. You hear this? You still sinned in judging them before you knew the deal. But because it turned out to be right, you concluded, I've got this sixth sense. And just remember that a broken clock is right twice a day. A blind squirrel finds an acorn every now and then. And there are lots of ways. I mean, every now and then you're going to be right. But you've concluded you're right. Maybe other people have told you, you know, you've got an uncanny sense. But perhaps you will never know until the judgment how many times you misjudged the character of someone because you prejudged. Before getting to know them or attributed motives to them without proof. I'll say more about the judging of motives that can lead us then to false conclusions about others, a form of lying, in a bit. Now, as part of this series over the last few weeks, I have quoted what the Heidelberg Catechism of 1563 says about these various commands. In question number 112, the question is, what is required in the ninth commandment? And it says this, that I bear false witness against no man, twist no one's words, that I be no backbiter, that is, speak spitefully about someone, or a slanderer, that I do not judge or join in condemning any man rashly, or unheard of, that is, without hearing his side of the story. 
But instead it goes on, but that I avoid all sorts of lies and deceit as the proper works of the devil, unless I would bring down upon myself the heavy wrath of God. Likewise, that in judicial and all other dealings, I love the truth, speak it uprightly and confess it. And that as much as I am able, I defend and promote the honor and reputation of my neighbor. All of that is required if we're going to be people of truth and avoid a violation of this ninth commandment. It should be something to which we are motivated as God's people. Because Proverbs says this, the righteous hate what is false, the wicked bring shame and disgrace. The righteous hate what is false. We are people of truth. If we are God's righteous people, if we are the people of God, then we love truth and we abhor falsehood. Psalm 119, I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. And as I pointed out last week, Jesus said the devil is a liar and he is the father of lies. Now, Lou Priolo has written a little booklet called Deception. We carry it in our, our resource center. And he lists a number of ways that we lie. And he also gives some ways that we can begin to overcome that sinful habit. I'd like to spend the bulk of our time going through some of those different ways that we lie and the end with ways that we can begin to overcome those. So here are some types of lies. One is an unproven or unknown fact. Now, notice I have fact in quotation marks. That is for us to utter and pass along as truth something that is unproven or unknown, but to state it as fact. Stating something as fact that you cannot prove to be true, whether it's about a statistic or a policy, but especially when you assert something about another person without absolute knowledge. It's a form of bearing false witness against your neighbor. Now, I mentioned earlier that you do not, contrary to what you think or your spouse may have told you, you do not have the sixth sense to judge people. And I have been amazed and dismayed over the years at how many Christian people think they do, and so they feel at liberty to think things about people that they do not know to be true, they often go beyond thinking them to sharing them. It's wrong to even think them. And it's sinfully harming another to state them. I was once in the home of a good Christian family who had a dispute with another church member. I was there to try to ferret out the facts and mediate if I could. As we talked, they recounted as facts things that were either untrue or at least uncertain. And as I would point out the uncertainties and that there were other plausible, more positive interpretations of this other person's actions, one of the family members said several times, quote, but what we're saying is possible. Now, do you see what's happening here? The persons, these persons have conjured up in their minds why someone did what they did. And I'm trying to make the case to them that there are other ways to interpret what this person did. But the answer from at least this one person was, yeah, but our interpretation is at least possible. Right, but you can't prove it. So therefore you can't conclude it and therefore you can't take action upon it. But it was good enough for him that he came up with a possible interpretation, even if it was the most negative interpretation of what someone else said and did. But did you know, friends, that always thinking the best about another person's motives is a requirement of Scripture? 
God demands that we always give the most charitable interpretation to another person's actions unless proven otherwise. In the famous love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. You all remember that. It's read at weddings very often. Beautiful passage. Among the many characteristics of love, Paul writes this, love believes all things and hopes all things. That is, love believes the best. Remember, love is doing what's in the best interest of someone else. If I love someone else, then I don't want to believe. I don't rejoice in evil, but I rejoice in the truth. And I want to believe the best. And only when you prove to me that that can't be done, will I change that opinion. And so judging motives is something that you're not allowed to do. Let me refine that slightly. You're not allowed to judge the motives of people for good or otherwise neutral actions. If someone commits sin, you're allowed to judge their motives because motives for sin are always bad. But you're not allowed to judge motives for good or otherwise neutral actions. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 4. The Lord will expose the motives of the heart. You can only know a motive is wrong when the action is wrong. That's a big deal. You know, it's a big deal about how we think about each other, how we make false judgments and draw conclusions about each other. And then our self-righteousness and our pride, frankly, we think that we have the ability to do what the Bible says your deceitful heart does not have the ability to do. But we convince ourselves that we can, and it can get really ugly. I was personally, I told you guys this a few years ago, but I was personally accused of having false motives for otherwise good actions. I actually had someone write down 27 actions that I take that all had bad motives to them. And one of them was, I'm not making this up, you can't make this stuff up. One of them was when we have our events, like we had our Labor Day picnic and all of that, you know, I go around, I talk to everybody, I shake hands. That's me being a politician. <laughs> now, 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 going back to the person in whose living room I sat, and they said, well, it's possible. Isn't it possible? Yeah, it's possible. Sure, this whole thing could be a charade. I don't know what I'm trying to get elected to, but <laughs> nonetheless. <laughs> but nonetheless, sure, is it possible? That's, but that's not the point. The point is, what do you know? And how can you make an accusation against someone for good or otherwise neutral actions? The Bible condemns that. Now, I mentioned I would just make a 60-second allusion to the political realm, and I'll move on. But just to give you examples, listen. It's one thing to say that a, a Barack Obama, for example, but Barack Obama has a really weird background. I mean, the truth is he does have a weird background. And you can just look at all the kind of different stuff about his background. His middle name is Hussein. His dad was uh, a Kenyan. He spent a few years of his young life in Indonesia attending a a Muslim school. Uh, There are a lot of things about him and his background that are different than any president we've, we've ever had. That's all just factual information. And you could further take it a bit further and say, I think that's going to influence the way he governs. I think he's going to be overly sympathetic to Arab countries or to Muslim countries or something like that because of his background. You could say that. And you could back that up with some things about his background. 
But that's different than saying Obama's a Muslim. You see, that's a statement of fact. And it happens to be untrue. And if you make statements of fact without them being proven or documented, or if they're unknown and you state them as if they're known, then you have lied. And you need to go to the people to whom you have spread that lie and repent of it. You could say, I'll use a Democrat and a Republican. You know, if you say, you know, Donald Trump, man, in that 2016 election, he had a bunch of people with a lot of connections to Russians in his campaign. That's true. It's really weird how he makes all these positive comments about Vladimir Putin all the time, including when he was in Helsinki just this past July, and he's standing next to this dictator, and he's asked, do you trust your own intelligence community or Putin, and he sides with Putin. That's pretty weird. You could say all that. That's all true. But then to go from all that to say Trump conspired with the Russians to help him get elected, you don't know that. That's making a statement of fact that you don't know. So, friends, we do not have the right to state as fact things that are unproven or unknown to us. And that includes judging the motives of other people. Now, I invite you to turn back several pages to the beginning of your Bible to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And then Genesis chapter 3, the very beginning of human history and the entrance of sin into the world, we see lying at the outset. Lying from the serpent because he is the father of lies. And then in turn, the effects that that had on the first human couple and now on us. Verse 1, Genesis 3. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Verse 4, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. So this is an example of an outright lie. This is just an outright, contrary to fact statement. God says you will surely die. The serpent says you will not surely die. Now, these are not the kinds of lies that most of us tell. As we go forward, you're going to see that they're usually more subtle, especially for Christians and especially as we get more refined at it. But sometimes we are willing and able and have told outright lies. And usually the circumstances in which we do that are either one of two things, either to protect ourselves, protect our image. So someone asks you something, you're caught in an embarrassing situation, and so you lie about it. You protect yourself or to gain an advantage over other people. And so you lie about something you've accomplished or something you've done or you say something slanderous about the other person in order to cut them down to size and elevate and elevate yourself. But in all of these, these are forms of outright lying. Here's another example. I have a number of these. One is insinuation. To insinuate something. I don't have this on the screen. But insinuation. Verse 5 of Genesis 3. God knows, says the serpent, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. But he's holding something back. 
First of all, he's insinuating that God's not a good God. God knows that this is something good for you and he's withholding something good from you. That's what's being insinuated by, by the devil. And so it's impugning the character of another, in this case impugning the character of God, because he's really not a good God. He says that God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And this insinuation that he's not a good God goes all the way back to verse 1 of chapter 3, verse 1 of chapter 3, in which the serpent asks the question, did God say... You must not eat from any tree in the garden. Do you all see the do you all see the insinuation? God's withholding God's withholding all of this good stuff from you. But if you go back to chapter 2, when God gave the commands to the first man, chapter 2 verses 16 and 17, in fact they were able to eat from any tree in the garden except one. But the devil turns that around and says You must not eat from any tree in the garden. You're supposed to stay away from all of these beautiful trees. He's insinuating, continuing to insinuate something about the goodness of God. He does not have your best interests at heart. And you can insinuate things about people even when you state a technically true statement. Let's suppose that we were at a gathering. I saw you at a gathering And then the day after that, I'm talking to someone and your name comes up and I say, yeah, I saw him at that at that gathering and he wasn't drunk. Now, that's true. You weren't drunk, but I'm insinuating something about you, aren't I? That you and I've created a question in the mind of that of that person. Here's another example. Concealment, concealment. For God knows that when you eat of it again, verse 5, your eyes will be opened, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. Now this concealment here, what is it that Satan is concealing from them? When you eat of this, your eyes are, are going to be opened and you're going to know uh, good good from evil. You're going to gain gain wisdom. But what he's concealing is, is this. That when they learn what good and evil is, they're not going to be like God in that sense. God knows what evil is intellectually. When they eat this, they're going to know what evil is experientially. Did you know God does not know evil by experience? Because he's never done evil. You're going to be like God in your knowledge of good and evil. No, you won't. He's concealing something. You're going to know good and evil in your experience, and it's going to have effects on you. So to conceal something is to withhold something that the other party is entitled to know, and the withholding of that would be harmful to them. That's what Satan did here. Here's another form of lying, blame shifting. Blame shifting, and we find it again in Genesis 3 and verse 11. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? 
And then the woman says the serpent. And so as you've heard me say many times, here is the beginning of blame shifting. And it goes on in households all over the world to this day. So God says to Adam, what have you done? The first two words out of his mouth are the woman. It's an accusation against the woman, but it's ultimately an accusation against the God who made the woman. In fact, he says, the woman you put here with me. You've only made one woman and you messed up. You gave me a defective version. This is your fault. The woman whose praises he was singing just days before. In my understanding of the chronology, he is now blaming, but ultimately blaming God. And then the, God says to the woman, and the woman says that the serpent, well, we all know who made the serpent. So God made the woman defective. He gave the serpent. Ultimately, this blame shifting is going to God. And let me just say to you, friends, when you do blame shifting on persons or circumstances, you are ultimately blaming the God who put those persons and circumstances in your life. You say things like, the only reason I did what I did is because you made me. You make me so. You push my buttons. All blame shifting. Pleading ignorance is another form. The next chapter, Cain murders his brother Abel. In chapter 4 of Genesis, the Lord comes and questions him. He says in verse 9, the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Question mark. I didn't know I was supposed to have a responsibility for my brother. So it's pleading, pleading ignorance. Your children, if your parents, you've got children who will do this all the time. Plead ignorance. I recommend that you not allow your children to plead ignorance about things in the Bible. As you teach them the Bible. That you not allow them to plead ignorance about house rules. That you not allow them to plead ignorance about how Christians are to conduct themselves. And that you teach them all of those. Here's another form. Empty promises. Empty promises. Proverbs says, Proverbs 25 says, Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of gifts he does not give. So I'm going to do this. I promise you I'm going to do X and then I fail to do it. I'm going to show up. I'm going to volunteer for this. I don't, I've seen people do this. There are people who have the fastest right hand in the West. Whenever we say, hey, we need somebody. Hand goes up, register. When it comes time to do it, they're not around. It's making promises that you're not keeping. And it also goes toward warnings that you don't keep. It's a promise toward punishment. Parents, if you tell your children, if you do that again, I'm going to do X, guess what? You need to do, you need to do what you said. You need to keep your promises about what you said you were going to do. So do not believe everything you think. And then in your outline, do not tell everything you think. So here are some guidelines for becoming truthful. The first and most important is to ask yourself very honestly, am I born again? You see, friends, if you're a habitual liar, then that's not a characteristic of somebody who has the Spirit of God. Now, notice I say a habitual liar. 
It's not okay to lie at any time, but every one of us has lied from time to time. But if you find yourself as a habitual liar, notice what Revelation 21 says. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, idolaters, and all liars. Notice the company. Their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Am I a Christian? Are there the evidences of of spiritual life in me? And if not, then trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today. Receive spiritual life from him so that now you have the desire to do what you haven't had in the past. Then identify your style of lying. So I gave a bunch of ways in which we lie. Which one do you characteristically do? Is it some other one? That little booklet that we have in the Resource Center on deception has a number of others as well. And then make it your goal to be truthful. Make it your goal to be truthful. And what this requires in order to achieve this goal, it requires what the Bible calls putting off and putting on. And so you put off, and you put off by doing this, confessing. You confess. The first step in putting a sin off is to own it. To confess it, to confess it to God, of course, first, confess it to people who have been affected by it as well. Put off, but then you put on righteousness. It's not enough to stop lying. In Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 25, Ephesians 4.25, it tells us to put off lying, to stop lying, but then it also tells us how to speak righteously, how to speak rightly and in a holy way. So it's not enough to put it off, but you replace that by putting on righteous speech. You earn back trust. Did I give that slide for earning back trust? There it is. You earn back the trust of people that you've been deceiving. You've been lying to people over a long period of time. First step is to confess to them, but friends... Do not expect that those people are going to trust you overnight. You've been deceiving them for years. It's going to take time for you to earn back their trust by righteous speaking, by replacing, by putting on righteous talk. Identify your idols. What is it that causes me to do this? Remember I said usually when we tell an outright lie, it's because we're trying to protect our image or we're trying to uh, promote ourselves in, in some way. So what is your motivation for most of the lies you tell? Those are idolatrous. Those are the things that are ruling your heart. And then lastly, seek accountability. You know, Tell a brother or sister I have this problem. Someone who knows you well. To keep you accountable for the things that you say. And with all of that, We'll be able to achieve what I say in your take-home truth. We must protect truth in both word and deed for the sake of God and others. It's God's reputation. It's a reflection of the character of God. And lying is harmful to others. Let's bow and ask God to help us. Our Father, we thank you for again gathering us, for placing your truth in front of us, for loving us enough to tell us these things in your word because you know these are the things that are going to be most harmful to us in our relationships. 
Because you, all-knowing Father, know that when we reflect your honest, your truthful, your faithful character, that that's always what is best for us individually and in our relationships. So help us, Lord, to love you, the Lord our God, with all of our hearts, with all of our mind and all of our soul, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And Lord, may that show up in the way that we speak and use this facility of communication in in the way and, and for the purpose that you have given it and not in the distorted ways that sin brings about. As a result of that, may we glorify you, the purpose for which you made us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.